let's get it poppin yeah i'm why do i forever can like ugh, the stuff that my brain keeps is like magellan's scape chats weird one-off jokes let's get it poppin all right it's like that uh that short story that i reference all the time the uh, the tobias wolf short story bullet to the brain you read that one oh uh, no wait me i just wrote bullet to the brian um <laughs> you mean bullet in the brain <laughs> bullet in the brian now i want to make a sketch like stage show called brian damage <laughs> i'd watch it yeah i just play like brian several men named brian yeah Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Chats, a television podcast, book three, Avatar, The Last Chatsbender, or Chatsbender for short. My name is Magellan, and I'm joined by Sparky Sparky Boom Man, Alan. Easy. Here's the thing, Magellan. I'm just going to drop it right now. Big facts. Oh, my God. Big twist. That's that dude's yeah, big... actual name for the rest of the show. No, it's not. It's they call him Combustion Man at the end. Those okay, so those two they go back and forth though. Uh, okay, he never gets All a name. Right. That's pretty. That's something. They're not. <laughs> they're not good names. I guess that's intentional. That's the point. Yeah, but the fact that it yeah. sticks is is funny to me. Uh, yeah, that is funny. Just like it sticks around the fact that we keep doing this week after week relentlessly, and it's still fun. Mm, it's sticking to me like rice. It's ew. It's like that disgusting Kevin Smith tweet from like six years ago. Where he's like, been married to my wife for six years, and it's we still do the naughty stuff like we're cheating on each other with each other. And I, I love eating. <laughs> do you just you just wake up in a cold sweat thinking about that tweet <laughs> constantly, dude. Not cold sweat, <laughs> hot sweat. But like, he, I, I I do constantly think about that tweet. There's more to it. There's like, I love eating her butt, and it's like Kevin Smith, you're on the internet, but <laughs> relax. Oh. We don't. I'll find the wording for you exactly. It's very vulgar, okay. and I cannot say the rest of it on this podcast. But yeah, it's it's something. I think you've already. Said yeah, you've got the gist you... of it. Yeah. All um, right. Tell me more. Hey, <laughs> tell me. Let's, tell me what's let's going talk on. about Avatar. How about? Because that's what we do on the show. Every week we watch and discuss two episodes of Avatar: The Last Airbender. This week we watched season three, episode seven, The Runaway, and season three, episode eight, The Puppet Master. We'll start with The Runaway, which was written by Joshua Hamilton and directed by Giancarlo Volpe. Alan, what did you think of The Runaway? Or, well, first, tell us what happened in The Runaway. I'll combine those things and tell you very simply. Uh, Good. Well, frankly, the girls fight. We start with a Ocean's Eleven-esque in medias race plot twist uh, that Toph is being captured by Katara and being sent to jail. It turns out that Toph has been running a grift job all around this Fire Nation town, stealing money and making cash for some unknown reason. And then a lot of girl fighting happens, and then they find out that they both love each other before Katara breaks them out of jail using her sweat. Uh, I just... <laughs> nice. <laughs> I didn't like this episode very much at really? all. Really? Nope. Really, yes. <laughs> Actually. God, sentence structure is hard. It's just such a uh, why now? Why now, Avatar? This is this is one of those rare ones where I kind of liked it and you didn't like it. We're gonna yeah, it'll it'll happen every once in a blue moon. Yeah, because I try to like things, but I was watching this episode and just getting like nothing emotionally mm. out of it until like the sweat bending, which is interesting because of how it applies to the next episode, and then. Uh, Katara and Toph finally realizing, like, ah, oh, we work better together. Let's stop doing this thing, please. Yeah. It just took way too long. Honestly, man, I wish this episode took place in, like, season one. I wish I wish Toph was in the show that early. Cause... Yeah, I think the reason that I like this episode is because it was a much more responsible take on the Katara and Toph fight the whole time thing than when we saw that before. 
Uh, but I agree. If we had seen this earlier in place of that episode, maybe we wouldn't have been so upset before. Um, but you're right that it's, I think it's the same reason that, you know, I, I, maybe I wasn't crazy about the the kind of retreading of Sokka's development or the retreading of Katara's development in the last few episodes. I think it's just because they know that the show is ending. Uh, and so they're just trying to reintroduce and then tie up all of these sort of character relationships or, or developments or arcs so that it feels final. Um, so this to me felt kind of like, remember how Katara and Toph always fight? This is, they're done now. This is the last one. They'll never fight again, probably. Yeah, yeah maybe. I mean, they might they might yell at each other, but they're not going to have an episode about them fighting. Right, exactly. Anymore. Um, but it, it did... It, they really just jumped into it from the very beginning without any sort of setup. Katar and Toph have been totally fine, and then at the beginning of this episode, for no reason, they're both training Aang, and then before you know it, it's three minutes into the episode, and Katara is threatening to give Toph a mud pie. <laughs> <laughs> These are really like, serious why? threats that are why? taken seriously. Yeah. Um, and then it's, you know, it's just another episode where, like, Katara is the responsible one, and she gets mad that other people are irresponsible. But then they, they take it to a place that uh, made, that made me feel good. I think they justified it. It gets because the, yeah. yeah, no, go ahead. It gets there. It just takes so long because we have we have to learn that Toph is into this whole grifting idea. Like it starts with one of the better scenes of that because there's a ton of scenes of Toph doing crimes in this episode. Yeah, but the one where she's doing the three cups game with the guy and he is clearly cheating and she can see that, but she plays the like sad blind person and the earth bends the rock so that it appears under the cup and she wins. Um, yeah. First of all, the moment I watched that, just from a writing perspective, I was like, this is going to end with her having a wanted poster. And then she does, and I felt very, like, pleased. Because all the other crimes that she does are, like, relatively victimless, and, like, uh, you can't really catch her specifically. Um, yeah. But I was like, if if that is the only crime that someone notices her for, then she's in trouble already. Because there's, like, no way she cheated a cheater um, in that scene. And it's fun. It's kind It's, like, entertaining, but... Um, you brought up this point in your notes that kind of uh, broke this episode down for me a little bit, which is like, dog, why do they need money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the money for? <laughs> what are we going to do with like oodles of bags of cash? There's that like shot where where um, it's like, uh, I think it's like Sokka. She's like pretending to get run over by a, a palisade. Palisade? What are those things called? Where it's I, like some. Uh, I don't know. Isn't a palisade like a thing like a place yes i'm thinking of the palanquin yes she pretends to get run over by palanquin and then Sokka is is dressed as a guard and this guy just like drops it's like a little quick quick cut montage of like money falling into his hands and i was like palanquin noun a covered litter for one passenger consisting of a large box carried on two horizontal poles by four or six bearers i was exactly right good job well it was carried by horses but same idea uh that I was like, what's the like, what's the fun here? Like, why do we have money? What's good about like money in this world? What, what are right. we gonna buy? Food? They do that. They buy a lot of food. Okay, what are you gonna do with a lot of food? <laughs> Eat it. <laughs> you don't. You don't need all of this. Well, the 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 one thing that it seems like they can use money for is Toph giving Sokka some of the money to help with the invasion effort, and him making this offhand remark of, "Oh, I want to." make some armor for Appa. But, ha, I mean, it's Fire Nation money, so it's clearly for Fire Nation people. What are you going to do? Bring your Sky Bison <laughs> in for a fitting <laughs> at, at, a, at a Fire Nation armory? And just be like, hey, suit this guy up so I can invade your king. <laughs> He's not going to fit in the door, let alone be allowed into the state. <laughs> yeah. What? Question one. Um, Sorry. But, but yeah. Oh, go ahead. Where do they keep Appa during all of these things? Do they just like keep him outside? Just like a bush. They just put him in a bush. How does nobody see him? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Something about <laughs> Appa's just so like blithely aloof 
that I don't think he'll ever be found by anybody. If you just like scrunched his head up, I would just go, well, that's a big fluffy rock. All right, moving right along. Going to Star Market to buy some <laughs> That's chicken. a land. That's one of those land clouds. <laughs> <laughs> I read about this in a science book. Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson told me about this. This is fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they don't, they don't need money for anything except, like you said, maybe food. I guess a question that I had for you, that that was one of my questions. Another question I have is, uh, is this immoral behavior, cheating a cheater? Like, if they know for a fact that this guy is trying to slip the rocks out from under the cups in the cup game, do you, did you see that moment as an act of like, yeah, like we got him? Or an act of, oh, we are going down a dangerous path. Well, you've come to an interesting semi-conclusion that I wanted to tackle later in the season, but I might as well bring it up now, which is if season one is about discovering how a system has changed and season two is about trying to break down that system and, and like fix it from the inside, I think season three is like accepting that you can live in a corrupt system and like exist within it without compromising your morals. Uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and like change it in small ways that ultimately lead to broad scale change. Like they're allowed to do mm-hmm. that kind of stuff because like everyone in the fire nation, according to them is bad because they like, exist under a corrupt ruler. It's like that guy is objectively bad. So if we're bad, it cancels out and it's fine. And we're cheating a cheater. It's sort of like a Robin hood complex, except he isn't giving it to the poor. He's just taking it for himself. Uh, so I don't think it's, it's necessarily amoral. I think it's just kind of them accepting there is no way, like, we, it wouldn't benefit us to, like, arrest this guy. Like, what's what's going to make us, we're going to feel good? We're going to be like, we did good work? Yeah, I mean, I guess my question then is, does that, as a viewer who's invested in the success of these heroes, does that action feel unheroic, I suppose? Or does that action feel cynical? Because I think up to this point, the gang has been a fairly hopeful band of people Mm -hmm. but then this idea of well he was gonna he was cheating us anyway so we might as well cheat him i don't know to me that just feels really cynical i i think cynical is a challenging word to use here because uh i don't know i don't think it's painted as bad in the in the context of the show of like they're doing a bad thing it's more just like yeah that's what i'm asking like do you even irrespective of what the show's trying to do I think that ads. showing this makes them seem like a little bit worse? Yeah. I, I get, but like what's a heroic, like they've saved villages and then found out like, oh, they didn't really need our saving. Like we went around it in a wrong-headed way. That's like Katara's, a lot of Katara's arc is doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, they're not saving anyone. They're just helping themselves. And you could argue that that's for a greater good. Like if we can eat, we can get there and be healthy and happy on the way there and accomplish our objective of dismantling they're because there are some shows where the band of heroes is roguish, like Farscape, when we covered Farscape on this show. Yeah. Those heroes are, if we see them cheat a cheater, that's awesome. That's fun. Because they're, they're, they're most, they're semi-criminals. They're often criminals. They uh, fight amongst themselves. They uh, take things that they don't need to, and they make a big ruckus out of people who didn't deserve that. Like, they do terrible yeah. things all the time. Yeah. So I, so I guess... Because then another show or another story where it's a a grand knight and his traveling companions, we might see them as as trying to uphold a higher moral standard. But maybe being in the Fire Nation is changing changing the, like you were saying, changing the relationship of of the group to their environment um, in a way that I I think we haven't really thought about yet, but, but this episode made me think about. Yeah, like how how their morals have changed as a result of living in this this place for so long now. Well, but even how, not that their basic morals have changed, but the like justifications or the decisions that they're making are different when they're on the run in the Fire Nation as opposed to if they were in like a a water bending town. Because if if they were in like the water bending the what am i trying to say the northern water yeah, tribe yeah. or something and a guy tried to cheat them at the cup game and then Toph <laughs> cheated him back the whole group would be like what you can't do that you can't take money from this guy water tribe but since it's 
but since it's a fire nation, it's just interesting that, that this tribalism is so baked into the way that we're thinking about the show. Right. These are bad people that we can take from. Even though I said earlier, like, all the fire nation is bad. Obviously not. Like, there's, there's plenty of, like, amazing people right. Right. that are just ruled by a corrupt government and living in it and not changing it. Like, that's fine. Yeah. Um, I think what's more important in the discussion of this episode if we're going to keep down this like are does this does the actions of Toph in this grift episode make them seem like worse people um is how we examine how each character reacts to that stuff because yeah. Sokka is loving it not unsurprisingly he wants he likes expensive atlases he um does he buy the hawk in this episode mm-hmm. he buys a hawk and then we just have a hawk friend named uh hockey right. <laughs> for the episode which I kept reading in my head as hockey H O C K E Y, because uh, he just <laughs> really likes uh, God name one the Bruins. I could not name a single hockey team. Sorry, <laughs> the, uh, the New Jersey Devils. There we go. Um, he has a hot like he likes having things because he's right. often portrayed as like kind of self centered and a little bit like selfish and, and kind of like me and mine to get get all the good stuff. Like it makes sense that he likes that stuff. Uh, Ang though. Is the one where you're like, why are you okay with this? Right, right. You're the Avatar. You're supposed to be this beacon of like good balance and moral quality. Like what? You you are not. You did not at any point ask Toph to stop because Toph herself, completing the tri- the Triforce of of Grifters, uh, mm-hmm. is very okay with it. She's super into it. She sees a wanted poster of her face, or doesn't see it rather, but is told that there's a wanted poster with her face on it. And she asks how good the drawing is. She's so excited that people think she's a criminal. Right. And that there's a bounty on her head. Um, which is very reminiscent of like other sort of anti-hero swashbuckly stories. Uh, I bring up One Piece a lot. And there is like a recurring thing amongst the fan base and the, the story itself about like every time their wanted posters are updated, the characters that is, uh, they get really excited about like, what's our new number? What's <laughs> how many millions of dollars am I worth now? <laughs> Cause they're, they're like inherent, they're bad people. They're pirates. But, right. but Toph alone is the one who's like jazzed to be a criminal. Sokka just likes having things. And Aang is just along for the ride. And the meanwhile, we have Katara being like, we cannot keep doing this. <laughs> we are just stealing from people. Now we're not even like, like defeating the evil people. We're just, we're just taking things. Right. And it comes off in the episode as like very high and mighty and like, come on, like, let's, you know, let's do fun stuff and like, don't, don't hold us back. And then it, it ultimately like, you know, they get into the whole like, why do you have being motherly issues? And yeah, I like that they broke that down. Yeah. I mean, it did feel I wrote in my notes. I don't know when Katara's like, you're doing this because you ran away from your parents and you miss your parents. It's like, okay, we're breaking out the same psych textbook that we used during the beach yep to like psychoanalyze everybody but the i don't know the moment where Sokka and uh toff are talking on the cliff and katara is just like bathing <laughs> down below uh and here's this deep conversation where they talk about katara having to step into the role of the mother when their mother died i thought that was really nice um and i think we we needed that said and we've we've earned that moment after several seasons of having to watch this same kind of tired plot where everybody's goofing around and then Katara's like, you guys, and they're like, Katara, and then they're like, Katara, you're right. Thanks for taking care of us. Right. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, they kind of like get to this moral point where the, the like equivalence very quickly. We're all like, all right, I guess we all agree that sometimes crime is justified, but mostly let's not do unfair things. And let's all, like, be chill with each other. But like you said, that Sokka scene is, like, the best scene in the episode. Because it just feels yeah. very, like, we're just going to say what we mean. We're not going to beat around the bush anymore or have the girls fight anymore. Sokka is going to, like, say what everybody is thinking. Right. And so Katara agrees, well, I guess one more job wouldn't hurt. And uh, we find out that the beginning of the episode where Katara is getting a Toph arrested is all part of a, a heist where uh, the plan is that She's going to get arrested because she has a high bounty, uh, collect the bounty, and then Toph is going to metal bend out of prison. Um, I was proud of myself for figuring that out. I like halfway through. I think that's yeah. It's that 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 was the plan. You mean? Yeah, it, it's just a nice. Um, 
side effect, I suppose, of structuring an episode this way, where you give the audience a chance. Any any storytelling uh, conceit where you give the audience a chance to figure it out is nice because either they do figure it out and they feel smart or they're like, ah, I should have gotten that. Yeah, it's it's the key to any good mystery story is what you just described. Yeah. Uh, I, I felt like it was pretty straightforward. I was like, yeah, of course. She, what? Why would she arrest her? Uh, like, either someone's like possessed or um, they're being lied to or this is all a performance. Like, it felt very performative from that first scene where she's like, I found you, criminal. Um, right. But so Toph gets thrown into prison, and then she can't metal bend out of prison um, because why can't she actually metal bend? Is it like not because it's because the prison is wood. It's a wood prison. Yeah, <laughs> the Fire Nation knows. Like if we're gonna put other benders in in here, then they can't do anything with wood. We could burn the wood if we were if they were firebenders, but like, hmm, you know what I mean? Right. Hmm. Um, prisons are a big thing in both of these episodes, but just to sort of like conclude the episode. Uh, discussion basically katara is like what are we gonna do what are we gonna do and then realizes the most like simple thing which is that you can make water out of anything um one of my favorite things about this pair of episodes and i'm glad we watched them together is that we're getting more dimensions to what bending can constitute and like what defines Mm -hmm. how we bend yeah because katara runs in place for two seconds and then sweats enough that she can use her water to cut the wood bars open which is awesome. It's a great scene. She, it's just like brilliant. And even Toph says that. And you're like, yeah, that's really smart. Yeah. It's all water. Um, And then they break out of prison. And uh-oh, we have a worse problem because uh, spooky guy from earlier is back. Uh, yeah. And he's super found us. And he's he's back with his terrifying pop, pop, pop explosion noises. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. But overall, I don't know. I've been kind of bored by this guy because... The fact that he's finding them so quickly just means that they're going to keep getting away. Well, yeah, they. I think it's because it, because the first, the only reason I don't agree with that is because the first scene where they meet him, they say like, "How are we going to beat him?" And then the Ang says, "We can beat him," uh, and they keep cutting back to that. And so, like, you can tell that Ang at least is slowly formulating a way to be like, "We're not going to just run from this guy. We don't need to run forever, mm-hmm. run and get away successfully. Like, we have to eventually turn around and beat this guy up." And they're already starting to find little cracks in his armor uh, in this episode, at least, because they realize that he can explode, make explosions happen out of his third eye. Sokka comes to the conclusion that that is totally firebending, uh, which is an important note to make now for people who are going to listen to this and then go on to watch Legend of Korra, because this is Combustion Man, which is the name that Sokka starts to refer to this guy as from now on and what we're going to call him. Uh, is the first example I think of somebody who's bending without doing a physical like hand motion or any sort right. of like martial art. He's just bending because he can concentrate fire into an ex- like a con- like a single blast uh, out of his head. Uh, and like when you go on to watch horror and people are like doing like shooting bending out of their fingertips and like just making elements appear in front of them, it makes a lot more sense that they seeded the idea that like not all bending has to, because like you're locked into a really specific rule set. If every time someone bends, it has to be uh, either with their hands or with their body. Right. It's like in the fifth Harry Potter book where he learns to cast spells without, without a wand words. or without words. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Um, oh God, I didn't think we were ever going to bring up Harry Potter on the show, but <laughs> <laughs> I was in a Barnes and Noble yesterday and you'd be surprised how many displays are still Harry Potter based? Keep fighting the good fight, Barnes and Noble. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean it sells. They need to sell. Bookstores are dying. Whatever works. Um, yeah. Speaking of whatever works, they find out that the secret way to beat Combustion Man is just cover his eye, or in this yeah, case, throw throw a little rock at him. Throw a pebble at him. Imagine getting a rock in your eye. That hurts. Owie. I, sting. I threw a rock at a girl that I thought was cute in elementary school and almost went to prison. I almost went to detention. Whatever the elementary school <laughs> equivalent of prison is. It was not they that. Just, they just hold little bars in front of you. Yeah, just you can get around them, but they hold them in front of you and you may, you have to like jingle a cup left and right on them. <laughs> uh, no, it was like weird. I like hit her in the leg. We were playing at recess and then she cried uh, and I felt terrible. Um, don't throw rocks unless you're throwing them at a horrible combustion man. Um he he not only gets like blinded but when he tries to do it again he like it's implodes it backfires yeah yeah that's a really cool moment where he's like the first time we see his face go from stern like perfect v in his eyebrows to like uh-oh <laughs> uh 
like something out of a Wiley e. Coyote cartoon. He blows himself up, um, but he's fine. He just kind of—it was just a stumble, stumbling block, right? Uh, and the gang gets away. They get away safely, moving on to new adventures. Whew. It's a stressful one. <sighs> you got more out of me out of this this boring this boring episode than I expected. Hmm. I only have uh, one more thing to say. Well, two more. Sure. Um, I really liked. I thought they made some pretty funny and like responsible blindness jokes this episode. Oh, there's a lot of those, yeah. Yeah. Um like when Sokka is first using the hawk. Sorry for everything, your friend Toph. From you, Sokka. Toph can't write. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect handwriting. And then they're like, "All right, we'll write Toph a note." And it's like, "Oh no, we're gonna we're gonna run into a similar problem." Um, <laughs> she can't. Just read. very, very like matter of fact, making fun of Sokka as opposed to making fun of Toph, which is like the right way to responsibly do that sort of joke. Um, and then I. <laughs> I really liked when they were in the cell and Toph was like, we need bendables because it just made me think of about how much I need Lunchables. I saw Lunchables in a supermarket recently and I was like, yes, thank you. They still look worthless. You pay like $7 for like a piece of bologna and a cracker and then like half of a cosmic brownie and that's your lunch. It's so interesting, the the demand in my mind when I was a child for Lunchables. That's advertising. Because we didn't have them, and my folks never got them. Yeah. And I was like, what? People get to have, like, a, a little thing and, like, a, another thing and another thing. But, like, I was having those things, too. They, they were just bigger. <laughs> they were real food. They were just food. Food. <laughs> it's just actual boy-sized food. They literally sold you less food than you usually get and marketed it for kids. That's brilliant, honestly. Yeah. Just by being like, it's cool, you make your own sandwich. But I'm telling you, it was like a cracker, a piece of bologna, and then like some shredded cheese. <laughs> and a dessert yeah. item. That's not food. That's not food for anyone. That's a rat. That's rat's food. And now I'm picturing uh, a landfill full of unopened Lunchables and like rats appear upon it and they think that they've reached like Curly's Gold or something. They're like, oh. <gasps> Tonight we feast. <laughs> My brain does work like a cartoon. That's true. Um, speaking of cartoons, um, John, did you have any other commentary notes? No, man. Uh, I also, yeah, I did like the the top blind stuff being handled pretty well, and then that ends the, that caps the episode too. Where actually the final final scene is uh, she requests that Katara write a letter to her parents, um, and Hockey is sent to deliver that that message, and then we never see him again. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Oh, bummer. <laughs> Hockey's a one-off. I mean, I think that letter gets there, but it's not going to, like... Hockey's not going to, like, swoop in in the final fight and, like, poke out Ozai's eyes. That was the That'd funnest pairing. Awesome, that though. was the funnest two words I've ever said. Ozai's eyes. Yeah, that was, like... that was. I had a, I had a gas. <laughs> it's like an 80s soft rock song. Ozai's eyes. Do, yeah. Do, do, do. Yeah. Okay, I can picture Michael Bolton with that one. Um, I can also picture Michael Bolton reading this trivia, Magellan. Do you want me to read it instead of Michael Bolton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I prefer that. Uh, Top pretending to be hit by a carriage carrying a wealthy merchant bears similarity to a real insurance scam known as Flopsy. I just I always call that insurance fraud because I played Grand Theft Auto 4 once. Or one of those games. Uh, that's cool. That's a real thing. Um, this is the only episode in which hockey appears. Aww. Hmm. Uh, when the dealer begins his game with Toph, rather than removing the rock from underneath the cup and away from the table, he adds more rocks. This is to increase the odds of the player winning the first round and draws them into the scam. Oh, I was wondering why he put so many rocks at the first round. Wait, say that again? So basically what they're saying is in the first round of the ball game, he puts a rock under every cup. Oh, so that you win. And then you're like, I'm good at this. I can do another one. And then you are uh, guaranteed to lose the second one. I see. That's good. Tricky. Hmm. The whole, like, he puts the rock into his sleeve, that's exactly how that's done, I think. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting to note that the officials imprisoned Toph and Katara in a wooden cell, seeing as almost no one outside of the gang is aware of the existence of metal bending. Right. 
that I was a little skeptical of. Yeah, but what do you... maybe maybe I mean maybe Combustion Man is just like that good. He's done his research. Oh, that he knows about metal bending. Yeah, because it seemed like his plan, right? Overall. Yeah. Mm, it's weird. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the instances where Toph demonstrates the ability to see rocks that are not in contact with the ground. That's when she throws the rock at Combustion Man. I don't know, Earth vibrations? Or she, Yeah, or she can just sense rocks. Yeah, sense rocks. In mm-hmm. general. The town that Team Avatar visited was once named North Chung Ling, but the construction of the giant statue of Fire Dart Ozai caused the people to change it to the name of Fire Fountain City. That was a cool fountain, huh? Yeah, it cool was. Cool statue. It's a good setting for Man. something like fantastical to happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it made me... I, I just like liked that setting a lot, and that they started the episode with a shot of that fountain. I was like, whoa, where are we? Um, this is an interesting one. At one moment, Toph calls Katara Madam Fussy Bit- Britches. Whew. Uh, a term which was first used in the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, okay. They watch movies. I'm so glad they watch movies. <laughs> and this one I actually noticed. Uh, so one of the grips that Toph does is that she's at a carnival game and doing the like mallet swing thing. Uh, when Toph hits the hammer at the carnival, there's a woman among the crowd who is dressed exactly the same way that she is. <laughs> I think it was like similar hair too. And I was like, what? All right. I think the re- the the artist really liked Toph's design because remember like Azula had a doll of her too. Um, she's got a good design. Mm. Just the like hairband mm-hmm. with the big fluffy hair. Uh, and the short stature, like all of that, is uh, it's very iconic. Because ask me to draw, sorry, just to conclude that, ask me to draw a silhouette of every character from Avatar, and like I can draw Sokka pretty well, Katara not very well because it's just like feminine. Right, and they've kind of changed it. And her, yeah, her hair has changed so much. But like Toph, I have like a perfect cartoon image of into my head. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I think that is about going to do it for our discussion of this episode, John. All right, man. Let's take it to the airbag, and we'll be right back to discuss the Puppet Master. Ooh. Hello, Chatspender listeners. This is Alan bringing you the airbag for episode 27 of The Last Chatspender. If you haven't listened before, this is the airbag. It's where I read your comments and feedback. And this week, we got an email, which is actually exactly a week old. Our buddy Fenton sent us this one basically two hours after i posted the previous episode uh, and this was supposed to be attached to that one but he just missed the cut and i told him i'm sorry but i'm gonna put it in the next one uh also because we didn't get any feedback this week whoops if you want to fix that issue you should send us emails to chatspot at gmail.com or tweet at us at chatspot Fenden says hey alan and Majon. hi Majon's in a different state right now i'm sorry i haven't written in a while i'm not sure i'll get this finished in time for the episode but i'll try you did your best the Beach is a pretty Zuko-centric episode, which at this point is code for good. Ooh. Zuko's acting out to everyone around him because he's, star- he's starting to grapple with his own morals and principles now that he doesn't have Iroh to rely on. I didn't hate the way they showed Zuko's struggle before, with him breaking down physically in Bossing Se, but I think that this is the superior and re- more realistic way to depict it. Teenagers usually don't just admit that they were wrong, not even to themselves. They throw tantrums and lash out. Incidentally, we also do see Iroh. We actually see Iroh. One of the brief flashbacks we get of Zuko's childhood shows Iroh and Luten playing with Zuko at the beach. It's a little weird uh, to also finally see Azula in a somewhat vulnerable state. We're frequently reminded that she is still a psychopath, but she also has trouble talking to boys she likes and is haunted by the idea that her mother didn't love her, like most teenage girls probably would be in her place. I think the episode does a decent job humanizing her ever so slightly without making her less terrifying. I agree. Jean barely agreed. I guess if I had to point out something negative, it would be that all the emotion and conflict boils over in the last four minutes, and the pace is too quick. It's not a major complaint, and this is also the first time that we see the as-of-yet unnamed assassin that Zuko sent after the gang. Some people get hung up on the mechanics of his ability and how it's technically firebending. I have ideas, but I'm curious how consistent you guys found it with the rules of firebending as we know them. Um, so briefly regarding that, and, and we're talking about Combustion Man here. Uh, I, when I was younger, and even like while I was watching Korra, uh, started to push back against the idea that the shows start to posit, which is that bending doesn't have to physically take place like with your hand movements or with physical like dancing or whatever 
um, or martial arts, which is what all of the different bending styles are based on, um, bending can just happen because it's a world of magic. And if you make it so people can only bend when they, they have to, they can move, then you don't get cool moments like, you know, uh, Toph metal bending a piece of rock in her hand uh, or people like sweating their sweat water bending out of prison. Uh, you, it's hard to have stuff like that. Everything has to be a fight if bending can only happen with martial arts. That's my that's my general thought on it. And I know that like the Legend of Korra goes way, way deeper into like, I don't know, they just do bending. Fender thinks that the Avatar and the Fire Lord is an episode that Alan is going to like. Ah! <laughs> it's a lot of history and backstory about Aang's lineage as well as Zuko's. It covers a lot uh, before the war, how Avatar used to train, how growing up can strain friendships. But the most interesting aspect to me is how the war came about. It really struck me how sincere Sozin's belief seemed that taking over the other nations would be beneficial to them. Maybe I'm reading too much into the subtext, but it seems to me that Sozin's quest to conquer the world didn't initially involve exterminating a whole race of people. After Roku rightly shut him down, he became so obsessed with the idea that he didn't care how it got done. One thought I had while watching was that Roku is essentially the catalyst for these events that led to the airbenders dying. I mean, obviously Sozin is the genocidal maniac who's to blame, but if Roku had agreed to help him unite the nations, he never would have seen the Avatar as a threat and might not have felt the need to wipe out the Air Nomads. Maybe Roku could have been a mitigating influence. I wonder what alternate history version of these events would look like if they had joined forces. That's interesting. I'm going to tackle that in a minute. Uh, he finally ends this with one little additional fact we learned about firebending in this episode is that apparently firebenders can redirect forms of energy besides lightning, like heat. It seems Iroh exaggerated his tale of having invented this technique. Speaking of, we hear Iroh speak for the first time in forever. I think having him stay silent until now really worked. Not only did it make the transition to the new voice actor a lot less jarring, it also sold Iroh's disappointment with Zuko. I like the idea that Zuko's struggle isn't emotional, but also facilitated by heritage and family roots. But I can also see, easily see people making the argument that it's too on the nose, and I wonder where you guys will land on this. One last weird thought for the road, Aang is, technically, Zuko's great-grandfather in a past life. Think about it. I hope you guys have a great week, Fenton. That's true, that last part. Uh, and regarding the part right before that, and sort of like how the conflict started. Um, it's it is it's kind of complicated. I think it wouldn't make for a great story if Roku just bought into Sozin's plan to unite the nations. I think there has to be that ideological thing that breaks that. That's like even just in the context of this episode, not in the context of the war. That's what splits those friends apart. Is that this fundamental disagreement? Uh, but for the war, it's like yeah, there has to be another side. Um, I think. I, again, that argument is handled much better in, in the follow-up series. Um, and it's a bummer that I keep mentioning, like, oh, Korra does this better. Because, like, I, I still don't think Korra is holistically an amazing show. I think it's an okay show with a lot of um, interesting problems. Um, but what I'm getting at is that, like, some of these bigger bending and, like, homogenization ideas get tackled better in that show. Um, I don't have much else to say. I think that was a really good email. That was a, that was a fun read. Um, it's like I get little uh, miniature think pieces every week that I get to read on the podcast. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for sending that one in, Fendon. Uh, if you want to be like Fendon, like I said, send us email. We love it. If you don't want to send us email, don't. Send us, uh, I don't know, pictures. <laughs> send us a poem. Ooh, if you could send us a poem, I would love it. Send us a poem. If you're listening to this and you like, if you have like strong thoughts about either us or about uh, Avatar, shoot us a poem <laughs> through any of the channels that I mentioned. Uh, and I think I know they do plugs at the end, so I'm just gonna let them get right back to talking. Uh, let's take it back to the episode where the boys are going to be discussing the Puppet Master. Welcome back to Shatsbender. The second episode that we watched this week was Season 3, Episode 8, The Puppet Master, which was written by Tim Hedrick and directed by Joaquin Dos Santos. Uh, Magellan, can I tell you what happened in this episode? Yeah. I totally hijacked this intro from Magellan, by the way. I just want everyone to know that. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it, too. Uh, in The Puppet Master. I love you. Oh. I love you. Oh. Uh, oh. Oh. Wow. Oh, we can't both be the like the tsundere like girl who's like, oh no, I don't know. Oh. Right, right, exactly. In the Puppet Master, the gang goes to a haunted village where people are getting kidnapped and sent to the forest, uh, in, like it's some D and D stuff. 
Uh, and it turns out that there's an old lady who lives in the forest whose name is Hama, which is definitely not Japanese for beach. Uh, and then it turns out that Hama is a secret waterbender living amongst the Fire Nation. Uh, and she was in prison most of her life. And while in prison, she discovered that she hates the Fire Nation. And so she developed a technique called bloodbending, which allows <laughs> you as a waterbender to bend <laughs> the blood inside of a living being's body <laughs> to manipulate it and kill them and she breaks out of prison and uh it turns out that her and katara are really the only good waterbenders left so she tries to convince katara to become uh her protege in bloodbending katara realizes this is a terrible idea uh and then when hama threatens her friend's lives katara herself in fact bloodbends showing that even she is capable of one of the most ruthless scary things that avatar has shown us so far john what did you think of this episode Oh, sorry, it was Midian. I'll cut us in. Early on in this episode, I was, I, well, I was thinking, ah, okay, were you trying to be spooky? What are you doing here? You got to earn that, man. And then the episode goes on, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, I guess we kind of gave up. It's sort of a goofy hanging out with the old lady thing. Maybe she's weird, but I'm sure she's fine. Oh, my God, it's really scary now. Not a kid's show anymore. <laughs> We're talking about <laughs> something that makes me squirm and scream inside. <laughs> this is very, very scary. You you said last week when I read you this episode, you said, no, no. I groaned. I groaned hard, and I take it back. Well, I mean, the first part of this episode was the episode I feared it would be, uh, which is the, like, Oh, usually we're not scary, but we're doing a kind of, you know, one of those little spooky kind of episodes that I feel like shows shows just do sometimes because they feel like they have the license to do it. And it, to me, it always just feels kind of substanceless. I don't know, because like horror is such a specific tone that differs from the range of tone that that most shows have because it requires like a certain kind of storytelling that not all shows are doing all the time so when there's when there's like the scary episode or we go to the scary town uh i don't know i just get skeptical of it it's you're right because you can have this this show is chock full of like it's the blank episode like it's the we're going to a new city or like it's the sad temple episode um but it mostly avoids like tropey like blank episodes you know what i mean mm -hmm. um it doesn't do like a body swap episode it doesn't do a like bugs on the ship episode these are concepts and tropes that we've talked about um through the the entirety of chats uh and then for them to do like it's the scary episode is like it's like you said what's the benefit of that like what do we learn about our world from we already know the fire nation as a concept is scary uh right. and in the beginning half of this episode you're like what is it about a creepy lady stealing children that's like that fits with the tone of what avatar is uh but i think and I, this is what i knew from from last week they earn it and they, yep. they 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 make that that like creeping dread of like who's doing this and why are they doing it uh really sad and then also really terrifying and in like a meaningful world building sort of way uh, right and part of it is because how it's being done is a piece of the mystery too because you know you know from the beginning that it's this old woman being related to it in some way because we're being introduced to the disappearance of people and to her as a character at the same time so either it's going to be her or it's going to be some random bait and switch where she's going to lead us to the answer but odds are it's the kind of vaguely creepy old lady that's doing this and so then the question is, why and how? And the answers to both of those questions are deeply disturbing and also reveal the pitfalls of the continuation of some of the thinking that I think our, our main group has kind of fallen into, especially what we were just talking about with the last episode, them thinking it's okay to cheat a cheater in this kind of Fire Nation society because it's the fire nation who cares they're just a bunch of fire nation people but the natural logical conclusion of that line of thought is what H hana is that her name it's 
I think it's H-A-M-A. So Hama. 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 The natural logical conclusion of that line of thought is what Hama's doing in this episode, which is to say that she's just going to capture everybody in the Fire Nation and just imprison them because they're all the same to her and they're all part of the reason that her village was attacked, that her society was destroyed. Um, so it's it's this... It does a few things at once because it gives us a brand new disturbing mechanism making us realize that Katara and the other benders are capable of truly terrifying feats with their powers. Uh, and it also brings us to this point of, you know, Katara could end up like this woman if she feeds into a certain set of emotions. Right. The the sort of like frustration and anger that the battle against the Fire Nation has taken so many people from their side, but they haven't taken like the Fire Nation itself is thriving. No matter how much war goes on, its citizens can still live normal lives. Um, yeah. But the Water Tribe has to be split in half and like they have to live in huts and like all of the men are gone. Mm. Like that mm-hmm. that like sense of, of of universal injustice, like it's just not fair that the world is structured this way, is exactly the kind of thinking that could put uh, Qatar in a position where she would probably bloodbend another human being Hmm. um and what's brilliant is is like you said how cartoonishly evil the whole plot just seems and like basic because hama at the beginning is like i'm an old lady who likes puppets and you're like all right i've watched literally anything scary i know that like the puppet lady is gonna be evil like what is she gonna she's gonna like i don't know hang them in her room and like imprison them or like I don't know. She's going to eat kids and it's going to be creepy, but they're not going to show it. And then like the fact that it, they, they spend a significant chunk of this episode saying like, Hey, here's who Hama is. Here is the like exact psychological reason that she is capturing people. Uh, it is coming from a place of immense trauma. Yep. Uh, and we're introduced to that. And this is all part of Hama's like brilliant evil plan. She's one of the best, the show's best villains in my opinion. She 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 introduced this plan as like, hey, I'm from the Southern Water Tribe too, friends, right? Like we should all hang out. Uh, there's like six of us alive right now. Uh, you you guys like me? And they're like, yeah, I can't believe there's another person. And you're a waterbender, and you're a woman. Like Katara is just immediately like, this is my new friend. Like I love, yeah, having this motherly figure who can waterbend and teach me, and like immediately, fo- that's exactly what Hama wants. And that's what makes her really scary is that she's like, all right, now that they like me and that they know that I couldn't t- possibly be the villain, uh, I can lure them in further with my backstory. Right. And the the pacing of the episode push, puts you through a similar emotional arc that the characters go through, which is at first you're a little uneasy, you're a little scared. What's going on here? This is spooky. And then they step back a little bit and you feel relief. You're sitting there thinking, okay. Maybe that was just the beginning of the episode and everything's fine. This lady's pretty cool. I like her. Oh, I like her a lot. Oh, the more I learn about her, the more I like her. Uh, Maybe uh, we're going to finally have an old person on the show that's like a fun ally. Yeah. Other than Iroh. But not, not, it's not to be. (laughs) I like that you had this note in here about um, why is it that all old people are just drawn with lines on their upper lip? Yeah, like where does where does that convention come from? Why does that convey age? I guess it's just an easy drawing of wrinkles. But like, yeah. if I sent you a Snapchat right now of a smiley face, but I just put lines above the curl of the lip at the top, that wouldn't look like an old person. But there right. is something particular about like the way that it's drawn, where she's like, "Oh, that's like easy shorthand for old person." Because <laughs> because when she does her flashback, it's like the only difference is she doesn't have the wrinkles and uh, her like. She looks like Katara's mom, sort of. Yeah. Furthering the, like, connection between them. Um, so we get to this flashback, and I really want to talk about it because I'm, I'm curious what you thought about mm-hmm. about this whole storyline. Um, basically, Hama lived in the Southern Water Tribe, presumably was friends with Katara's mom because we saw a woman with Katara's hair loopy things. And I thought that right. that was, like, visual symbolism for, like, this is based, that's probably her mom, right? Pro- probably. That's probably the idea. At the very least, that's the age group that she was hanging out in. Um, or Katara's grandma. Or grand-grand, rather. Yeah, that's true. Grand-grand. Um, and they were all having a good time, and then the Fire Nation attacked for the first time. And the, like, sadness with which she conveys that, like, every time they came, they took more people. And the shot that breaks my heart is uh, 
she's like every time they came they took more people and there's like her and seven waterbenders like pushing back the fire nation and then six and then five and then four uh yeah and, and they tie her. they tie hama part of the way that they breed trust for us so quickly is that they tie hama to one of the earliest images of water tribe resistance that we see in the whole show which is the the frozen ship right 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 right. that they find in the very first episode and there's there's something about seeing her do that that as an audience member you're like oh oh that's great we finally are meeting this person she's really cool she was you know part of like the original waterbending squad Right, she she like we we have physical evidence that she existed and did a thing that we've seen in our history. Of right, resistance. so it, like, it makes us feel tied to her and respectful towards her, in a way that that makes the reveal even more gut wrenching. And it it helps you empathize with her almost like she's right. all about resistance and being the one to fight back. And no matter how hard she fought with waterbending. She couldn't fight back because one person against many, using the traditional elements as they are, can't do much. Like, she's just one human. Uh, She gets imprisoned. For years, she's in prison. uh, Fending by herself, getting old, just, like, not, like, hating life. And then, you know, this is the turn. Basically, the music starts to get kind of dark. And they're like, what's your plan? How did you, like, get out? Well, there was a bunch of rats. And what I realized is, hey... You know, she has this moment beforehand where she's like, Katara, I'm going to teach you all the cool ways to waterbend. <laughs> like, very foreshadowing scene where mm-hmm. she's like, you can waterbend out of the air because there's water in the air. And then Katara's like, oh, nice, nice, nice. I waterbended sweat last week. Well, that's cool. And then Hama's like, yeah, waterbending out of the body sounds like a cool idea. Hmm. Huh. By the way, you can also bend the water right out these flowers. You can. T- yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, that's they're shot. All, they're all dead. Yeah, they're just flowers. Who cares? They're just flowers that specifically grow here and nowhere else. That look beautiful and are unique to this location. Yes. <laughs> Who cares? Who cares? That shot is super... That's like a very memorable, very scary yeah. shot where she just bends all of the moisture out of a whole bed of flowers. And then Katara's like, well, I guess they are just flowers, but this seems terrible. Right. And then she's like, yeah, so remember those rats that I like loved and they were my rat friends in prison? Uh, I made them dance for me. Just like very benign way to introduce the concept. They like they dole it out yeah. really well. Yep. Because they hint at it with the whole bending the body. Then they show the rats and she's like, I made the rats dance. And then I made the rats fight. And then I made and then I made the humans dance. And then I made the human fall down. <laughs> and then I broke out of prison and I made him open my prison cell. And then I killed him. And then I killed everyone. <laughs> and you're like, oh no. And now you're going to take my place. As a master killer, also heads up. I'm ca- I captured all of the people that were stolen from this town, and I keep them in my basement as prisoners because that's what they did to me. This is the this is the moment where this felt like exactly like an '80s horror movie. Like it turns out Freddy or whatever uh, is the product of like child abuse, where it's like, yep, the the horrors of the past mm. create monsters, right? The horrors of war created Hama. Hama is, is a product of her environment. She's not an inherently like like a chaotic evil character. She's evil as a result of, of of horrible things that happened. Right. And that's that's ultimately why I think Hama's great. I think she's an amazing villain. Right, because it I mean any good villain is somebody who at one point diverged from the hero's path. Yeah. And she is somebody who long ago diverged from Katara's path. So we can see Katara could turn into this woman. Given the right circumstances, Katara could be Hama. Um, And we're going to hope against hope that that doesn't happen. But now we know, and Katara knows, what she's capable of. The evil that she's capable of if she's pushed to be that way. Right. Um, they, They are like, she's one bad day from becoming Hama, basically. Right. Uh, and yeah. she she almost has that bad day at the end of this episode when Hama, in a horrifyingly cool <laughs> sequence, <laughs> makes Sokka and Aang fight Katara and then nearly impales 
the two of them onto Sokka's sword. That, like, stopped my heart for a second. I, like, clutched my chest when I saw that. And I knew it's not going to happen, but I was like, oh, yeah. my God. That's real tension right there. Yeah. Uh, the fact that it that it successfully scared me, even though I know, A, where this episode goes, and B, that, like, they don't kill people in this show that, much, that, that way. Yeah. Uh, I was still like, oh, my God, this is horrifying. Um, I actually forgot that Aang and Sokka are the reason that this scene is so terrifying. Um, I like in my head the memory of this episode was Hama is an evil bloodbender who kills all the flowers, steals all the people, puts them in her basement, and then her and Katara fight in the forest. I forgot the element of like she used their friends against them, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what makes it really scary. Is that like even the, the Avatar has no control over this, um, right? And then Katara has to revert or what's the word resort katara has to resort to using bloodbending to stop her which right. further drives home this idea that everybody has a price katara is not completely morally pure there are going to be circumstances where she'll make the choice to control somebody against their will to push somebody's blood against the walls of their veins and arteries <laughs> that's exactly what's get- happening to get what she wants. And sure, it's to protect her friends. But when you think about it, that's that's Hama's rationale as well. To protect her people. Or to find vengeance of some kind. And what makes it so scary, and I want to talk more about that fight scene too, but like, she beats Hama. Uh, she like water bends all of the moisture out of a tree and like wilts a tree, which is really scre- creepy. Screepy. It's scary and creepy. creepy. Uh-huh. Uh, Hama gets captured by the police. And then... In her old age, her goal is not to defeat the Fire Nation or, like, keep her prisoners. Her goal is to pass on her legacy, like any good old character. Yeah, to teach Katara bloodbending. And, and she, she succeeds. won. Yeah. Hamel ends this episode saying, like, uh, my job here is done. And you're like, oh, Katara yeah. can't unlearn that. <laughs> it's very much like a strike me down. Yes. And take your first step on the path to the dark side kind of moment. It's the most Star Wars, for sure. Yeah. Um, again, though, your I really, faith in your friends is yours. I want. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the list of roles that Magellan is destined to play: one, <sighs> the cool guidance counselor, but who's actually very serious; two, the emperor. <laughs> We're gonna keep fun. a running list until we die. Some or kind of we... emperor. You what? Some kind of emperor. Yeah, yeah. that'd be fun. Yeah, just like a king emperor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This all lines up. Your faith in your friends is your. <laughs> spit all over your mic i can see it and we're on a skype call and i can see the spit on your mic that fight seems incredible though there's like um a thing with the thing about anime is the beginning of a good sentence thing with anime is whenever it's a show with a lot of fights if you go on google and type the show's name in or on youtube rather uh you always get like the best fight scenes in hd um if you type in avatar the last airbender one of the first scenes that comes up is this hama fight with good reason. It's, like, incredible cinematography-wise. Yeah. Uh, other results are, like, stuff from later in Season 3, obviously. But, like, this one comes up first and has, like, millions of views because people were so creeped out by it. And then just, like, the, the choreography of the way mm-hmm. that it's, like, they're using... Wa- the two strongest waterbenders are just using it in murderous, terrifying ways. Right. It's super spooky yeah. um, and really beautiful at the same time. Uh. I'm trying to think if I had any other notes. I feel like I wrote more about this episode, but there's nothing else that's like interesting. I think it's just really good. Yeah. You know, at a certain point, if an episode's just really good, just go watch it. Yeah. At the very least, watch that fight. Like knowing what happens and where what it means and what's the, like the, the context of it. That fight is incredible. Yeah. Uh, and it teaches us a lot. Qatar has like developed in a huge way in this episode. Um, other notes i don't really have any other notes other than the music in this episode was good and there was a guy named old man ding which i thought was fun uh-huh. uh but i want to read you some trivia if you'll allow please, it please do i'll allow it i'll allow it uh this episode was conceptualized with the name the dark side of the moon a fact that was accidentally referenced mm. in a comic later in the, the, the show's canon that's a fun name because it's sort of like the dark side and the moon like is Star, the like, like Star Wars. She says you can only blood... Don't forget this. You can only blood bend under a full moon. Mm. It's definitely one of those, like, put a pin in this. Because that's that we call that check out a gun here in the biz. Uh-huh. It's but, sort of like a werewolf thing. Yeah. Remember it, Big Wolf yeah, on campus? It, it, no. 
it gives this angle to angle to because ah, up to this point the moon has been the symbol of of serenity and beauty and girlfriends and girlfriends but now the moon also is looping in this the sinister qualities that it has in other media mm-hmm. um and i you know when i say werewolf i'm i'm joking but it it the moon does have a sort of foreboding quality when you think about the supernatural right that now it it's it's taking on because of this bloodbending power yeah i noticed that you were in your notes like what is it going to turn out that hama's a werewolf Right. Which they could have very easily also done, but that would have been a little bit different. Like, it doesn't really have to do with elements that much. It's more just the moon. Uh, this is considered to be one of the darkest episodes of the series. No, duh. Yeah, thanks. Uh, as uh, this was a Halloween special released in October of 2007. Oh, Timely. Okay. Timely. All right. Uh, this episode also calls into question whether or not the Avatar receives a boost to their power when the full moon, uh, from the full moon, like normal waterbenders do. Oh, interesting. Uh, because Aang couldn't break free from Hama's bloodbending, even though he's technically a powered-up waterbender. Hmm. I think he was just caught by surprise. Yeah, um, and he didn't know what was going on. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, although Katara uses bloodbending in the later episodes, duh. This is the only time the technique is actually mentioned by name. Cool. Uh, okay. This is... <laughs> <laughs> Here's a lighter one for you. This is the second and final time that Toph is seen blushing. Okay. <laughs> Do not remember Wait. when she did that, but good stuff. Me neither. In Hama's flashback, one of the villagers surrounding Kana is similar in appearance to Toph. Oh my god. <laughs> Such a weird trend we're noticing. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a fun one. In, this is the only episode in book three that references book one. They kind of huh. put it to bed for a while, and they're like, no, wait. That thing from the pilot's very important. Huh. Interesting. Uh, yeah, they because I mean, not a lot like big picture wise happens in season one. Yeah, that's true. They're just kind of tooling around. And Admiral Zhao is seemingly important, but it turns out he's not. Yeah, he just dies. <laughs> Zhao no. the Moonslayer. Zhao the Moonslayer is trapped in the spirit world. He's not dead. Isn't that death though? Not necessarily. <gasps> I mean, he maybe his spirit will appear, but isn't he still dead? <gasps> This is the fifth episode that does not appear in a previously on Avatar recap. Ooh. Probably because... Oh, that's weird, actually. Yeah, you'd think they would want to re... Like, the next episode where she bloodbends, they're going to be like, hey, remember? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then another interesting one. Aang does not bend a single element in this episode. That's kind of cool. That's interesting, yeah. He's supposed to bend all the time. Um, But yeah, I think that's going to do it for our discussion of that puppet master. The Preppet Master. The great. Pre- Come on. <laughs> that was a great one. <laughs> but John holds my feet to the fire because he's a firebender. Just trying to keep them, keep those, keep those corn dogs toasty. Tater tots is what I was trying to think of. Thank you. Couldn't let's think keep, of the food. Let's keep that pregnant pause and not remove a second of it. Keep that pregnant pause toasty. Yes, what you said. Um, Magellan. Yeah. Do you want me to tell you what we're going to be watching next time? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we have another beefy one next week, Magellan. Oh, goodness me. You Are you excited? Yes. Because next time on Avatar, the last chat spender, mm-hmm. we are watching season three, episode nine, Nightmares and Daydreams. <laughs> Whoops. Okay. On the eve of the eclipse, Aang's anxiety gets the better of him. His dreams become nightmares, and soon he can no longer tell dream from reality. Okay. You like interiority. Yeah, but I don't know. I guess I'm just I'm just skeptical of all of these episode conceits because I'm a I'm a, a man, what's that thing where you're a bah humbug a Scrooge? I guess I'm just a Scrooge. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I'll wait. I'll I won't. I'll just wait. What's the next one? Well, hey, man, if you don't like that episode, then the next one is a 47-minute baby boy. Whoa, bud. We're next going to be... Let's do it. We're going to be watching uh, Season 3, Episode 10, Day of the Black Sun. All right, so the Eclipse thing doesn't work out for him? <laughs> so <laughs> you're t- that's what you're telling me? <laughs> so, yeah, that Eclipse we mentioned earlier? Uh-uh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, With... It'll be good to see them fail, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's the show. With the day of the eclipse upon them, the kids, along with a ragtag force of old friends, 
enact their long-planned invasion of the Fire Nation. Beautiful. They haven't done a lick of planning, let me just say. They've they've long discussed and thought about it, but this I've is, seen nary a plan. I, fr- I definitely thought about this when I watched the show a couple years ago. This is episode 10. You know it's not going to go well. It's episode 10 of, of, right. of, several, yeah. of 16. Right. Well, we're actually almost done with Avatar. I just got really scared. Oh, goodness. Uh, Madone, we're actually also going to have a guest on for Day of the Black Sun, which is very exciting. What? What? I'm thrilled. You know who you are. How you doing? We're excited to have you on. Yeah. Uh, let's get to some plugs so we can also tell people how they can guest on Avatar The Last Chatsbender. Yes. First off, if you like the show and have feedback that you'd like to submit to us for our airbag segment, you can email that over to us at chatspod at gmail.com. That's C-H-A-T-Z-P-O-D at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at 140 or 280 characters if you're fancy. Oh, that's dating us a little bit, huh? I mean, more. some people have it now and some people don't. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but the, like, the discussion around it is old. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh at chatspot on twitter is where you can find us there uh it's a good time and uh finally you can find the show's uh ever updating weekly playlist where majan and i add music that we've been listening to and thinking about in relationship to avatar and just in relationship to relationships to our relationship yeah yeah uh over at uh the ambient bag on spotify which is a place you can find by going to bit.ly slash ambient bag majan where can people find you on the internet they can find me on Twitter at JustAfluke, that's J-O-S-T-A-P-F-L-U-K-E. You can also listen to me on another podcast called Adulthood. It's sort of like if you're a boyhood, but you're grown up, and that's what the podcast is. What about you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter over at Alan Ibrahim. That's spelled A-L-L-E-N-I-V-R-A-H-I-M. And you can listen to me on another podcast about pop culture and friends. It's called Fireside Friends, and it's found... Wherever you listen to fire, wherever you listen to Fireside Friends. <laughs> wherever you listen to that crackling sound of fire. Like FiresideFriends.net, for example. <gasps> we bought a domain. And oh, we bought goodness. a zoo. Oh, my. <gasps> I ate the bones. I ate the bones! <laughs> John, let's take this nightmare train home once and for all. <laughs> Snarf, is, Snarf is actually the secret guest for next week. <laughs> that was me as the skeleton conductor of the nightmare train. Oh my god, that's my... The skeleton conductor of the Nightmare Train is the most Halloween thing you've ever said. I love it. That's a couple weeks early, but get ready. Yeah, we're warming up. We're keeping it toasty. We're keeping it toasty. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Avatar The Last Chatsbender. Flamio, hot folk!